Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. It is really a pleasure for me to be able to introduce my friend and colleague, uh, Catherine Pearson, today for this Constitution Day lecture. Uh, so Professor Pearson is a professor at the University of, uh, I was Wisconsin, right? Minnesota. Um, Okay, double check. I messed this up yesterday. Um, where she has written extensively on the U.S. Congress, on congressional elections, political parties, uh, and women in politics. And the, one of the many things I appreciate about Professor Pearson's work is um, how sort of deeply she understands the legislatures that she's looking at, but also how broadly her work has been in sort of examining different facets of uh, legislative politics, as, as we're going to see today. Uh, she's the author of a number of journals in really outstanding outlets, uh, journal articles and outstanding outlets, uh, as well as a 2015 book uh, titled Party Discipline in the House of Representatives that I recommend to you very strongly and have read closely. Um, that book was based on her dissertation, which won the Carl Albert Prize for the best dissertation in legislative politics. So she's been putting out the great work from, from day one. Uh, she's working on a new project uh, that I'm really excited about, and I, I'm guessing we're going to hear a little bit about today, uh, Gendered Partisanship in the United States House of Representatives. Um, I also, lastly, because I promised her, want to point out that um, uh, Professor Pearson came to political science having spent five years on the Hill, where very importantly, she worked with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, worked for them on both sides of the aisle. Please join me in welcoming Professor Pearson. Thank you. Thank you, Christina, for that warm introduction, and thank you all for having me on Constitution Day. So happy Constitution Day. Um, but uh, as promised, I'm going to talk about Congress in the Trump era, gender dynamics and partisan politics, and not so much the Constitution. But I figure Congress is the first branch, um, so we're good to go. And I'm uh, delighted to be here with you. And I'll be speaking for a while, but I'll be sure to leave plenty of time for Q&A. If you have a burning question as I go, feel free to ask, but otherwise we'll save questions until the end. Uh, the United States Congress has changed in some pretty significant ways over the past 30 years. There's been a dramatic increase in partisan polarization and partisan competition, and a dramatic increase in the number of women elected to the House and Senate. Scholars have devoted considerable attention to both of these phenomenon, but usually in isolation. And so in my research, I try to bring these trends together and see what the important connections are between them. I was inspired by the disconnect between the study of Congress and the study of women in politics and my own observations, as Professor Walbrecht mentioned, mentioning working for two different Congresswomen on both sides of the aisle in the 1990s. I've done research on party discipline, and as I interviewed former party leaders, they themselves would volunteer gender differences and party loyalty, which is what I'll get to later in the talk. And so my research really speaks to the need for a broader understanding of the far-reaching effects of congressional polarization in the contemporary era. When we think sort of broad brush about gender and politics, it's a historic time for women in politics. The Me Too movement has prompted a lot of important conversations and awareness. A record number of women ran for Congress in one seats in 2018. Speaker Nancy Pelosi 
reclaimed the speaker's gavel in 2019, and a record number of women are running for president in 2019. But these firsts really obscure women's persistent underrepresentation, the diversity of women running and serving, and related challenges inside of Congress. And so that's really what I'll focus on today. If we take uh, a look at the past 30 years, the number of women in Congress has more than tripled. Yet still, women comprise only 23% of the House today in 2019 and 25% of the Senate. This increase in the number of women in a male-dominated institution has raised questions about the effects of electing women and the gender dynamics inside of Congress, and with every election, has provided scholars with more women to analyze. But as you can see, the divergence between red and blue on this chart, since the 1990s, the growth in women's candidacies and in women in Congress has been concentrated among Democrats with some important implications. Of the 102 women serving in the House today, 89 of them are Democrats and only 13 are Republicans. So take one last look at this figure. You can see that this dramatic increase looks pretty great, women in Congress, until it's to scale. So this represents the increase of Republicans and Democrats uh, in office, women in Congress, if the scale goes to 435 and the underrepresentation is a bit more glaring. So this figure done to scale illustrates women's underrepresentation. And you should know that the US ranks 78th worldwide in its percentage of women in national parliaments. And so uh, by those standards, the US really is not doing very well. Before I dive into gender and partisan dynamics inside of Congress, I want to spend a bit of time talking about the path to Congress, because it's really important to understand women's representation when you think about constituencies and the representational imperative. So the first thing that I always tell my students that really surprises them is when women run for Congress, women win at the same rate as men. That's not to say that there aren't good women and good men who lose, there are, but the rate of women winning is the same as men. So in other words, uh, the percentage of women who run and win is the same percentage of men. So what this tells us is that not very many women are running in the first place. There was a time when people knew these general election results, which are pretty consistent in every election and are also consistent, by the way, in state legislative races, when people wondered, well, is something going on in primaries? Are women being weeded out in primaries? Are women more likely to lose in primaries? And the answer is no. And not only is the answer no, Democratic women are actually more likely to win primaries than Democratic men, all else equal. And for Republican women, there's no statistically significant significant difference, although in, in uh, experimental studies, Republican voters are actually less likely to indicate that they would vote for a Republican women. In surveys of women and men in the so-called candidate pool, men and women who hold positions as attorneys, in small business, as educators, and political activists, women and men with the same qualifications don't view those qualifications in the same way. In fact, men are more likely to say that they're qualified to run for office uh, than women with the same qualifications, and then are more likely to do so. So it's not surprising that since 1982, the women who have run for Congress have been more likely to have previous electoral experience than the men who have run for Congress. 
Um, but women of both parties are more likely to run than men are in Democratic-leaning districts. So this helps Democratic women. It hurts Republican women. And much to everyone's surprise, again, if you look at campaign fundraising, Democratic women candidates actually outraise Democratic male candidates. And among Republicans, there's no statistically significant difference. So for the most part, these results of elections through 2016 suggest that the women who do run for Congress are more experienced, strategic, uh, prepared, and work harder to raise money um, to achieve these gender-neutral results. Well, flash forward to 2018, when all 435 House seats are open and 35 of 100 U.S. Senate seats are open. Well, Democrats needed to win 23 seats to gain majority party control in 2018, um, and they actually flipped 40 seats uh, with 60 new Democratic members. Republicans, on the other hand, in the Senate gained two new seats uh, for, for a change from unified Republican control to divided party control in the current Congress. All of this becomes relevant as I talk about the current gender and partisan dynamics. It's important to note that under any circumstances, it was going to be a good year for Democratic candidates. The out party is typically advantaged in a midterm election cycle. In midterm since 1862, the president's party has averaged losses of about 32 seats in the House. And in only three elections in the last century has the president's party actually gained seats in the House. That was in 1934, 1998, and in 2002. So it was pretty clear under any circumstances, that 2018 was going to be a good election for Democrats. But it was a particularly good election for Democrats for a couple of reasons. One is that President Trump was very unpopular among Democrats and very unpopular early on. And so that motivated a lot of candidates to declare early, earlier than in most cycle, and in particular, women candidates. So while a record number of Democrats ran in 2018, a high re a record number of women in particular ran. So not only did a record number of Democratic candidates run, but the percentage of women was greater than ever before. So 476 women ran for the U.S. House and 53 women ran for the U.S. Senate. And women won their primaries at higher rates than men uh, among Democrats. But once again, there was a partisan gap in women's candidacies. Women comprised 43%, a high watermark, of Democrats' nominees for the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, while as whereas women were only 13% of Republicans' nominees for the House and 22% for the U.S. Senate. That 22% among Republican women for the Senate was a record, but the 13% of women among Republicans was not. Women Republicans set their own record in 2010, um, which was a much better year for Republican. At the, in the same election cycle, 67% of women running for the state legislature uh, were Democrats. So this partisan gap was very clear in 2018, fueled in part because midterm elections are typically good for the out party, but in particular, many women were motivated to run over anger at the 2016 elections. This led to a record number of women on the ballot in November 2018 uh, for House, Senate, and uh, gubernatorial contests across the country. In addition, women, were, women of color were one-third of all the House candidates, setting another record, and another record was set when 33 women actually challenged other women uh, for, in races that were guaranteed uh, to elect women. Whoops, okay. 
So all this meant that a record number of women now serve in the 116th Congress. 36 new women were elected for a total of 102, 35 Democrats and one new Republican, meaning that in the current Congress, as I said earlier, there are 13 Republicans and 89 Democrats. There are also a record 43 women of color. 25 women now serve in the U.S. Senate, eight Republicans and 17 Democrats, including four women of color. So earlier I started by talking about research that shows that men and women win at the same rate. Well, in 2018, non-incumbent Democratic women actually won at a higher rate than non-incumbent Democratic men. So a little over a quarter of non-incumbent Democratic women won, which was quite striking, especially compared to only 3% of non-incumbent Republican women. And in fact, nearly 6 in 10 of the non-incumbent Democrats who did win were women. And just as it has in every other cycle, electoral experience was still key to many women's victory, but the experience for some women in the military, as community organizers, and in other professions was also important. The majority of Republicans elected to the House in 2018 were white men, but in the Senate, both of the non-incumbent Democratic winners were women. So clearly 2018 was a good year for women. And that helped propel Democratic gains. So this, New York, this uh, graphic from the New York Times, I think, is particularly interesting in that it shows where Democrats and Republicans, uh, the type of districts that they represent, and where the flips occurred. It's a little bit hard to read, but it goes from left to right and shows all the rural districts, uh, rural suburban, sparse suburban, dense suburban, urban suburban, and urban districts across the country. And the bright red and bright blue indicate the districts that flipped, either from Democrat to Republican or Republican to Democrat. And a disproportionate amount, uh, number of those districts that flipped from Democratic to Republican, those 40 seats, were actually flipped by Democratic candidates, Democratic women. And those women tend to be much more moderate than sort of the current uh, portrayal would suggest. Uh, just quickly on voters. We often think that you know, gender is an important predictor of vote, but party identification is actually the most important predictor of the vote. But there is a gender gap uh, in the sense that women are more likely to support Democratic candidates. Not necessarily women, but in 2018, Democratic candidates were disproportionately uh, likely to be women compared to Republicans. And so if you look at data collected by the Co Cooperative Congressional Election Studies on the congressional vote uh, from 2008 to 2018, um, plotting the Democratic share of the two-party vote, where 50% is sort of equal share to Democrats and Republicans, you can see that the only consistent group to vote for Democrats are college-educated white women. Um, some of the other groups uh, fluctuate, but non-college women and uh, non-college men are consistently unlikely to vote for Democratic candidates. So party ID is the biggest factor, but gender matters in vote choice as well in, in significant ways, particularly with the uptick in 2018. This graphic is also from the New York Times, and it shows sort of in 
red and blue, the gender divide from 1982 to 2018. And this plots women on the left and men on the right. And the curvy lines indicate their votes for a Democrat, Democratic or Republican congressional candidate in the elections from 82 to 2018. So you can see that in all but one election, women have trended more toward the Democratic candidate and men have trended uh, more toward the Republican candidate with, again, a couple exceptions. So um, in 2010, Republicans won the female vote. Um, and you can look at some of the, the other elections where the gender divide mirrors the national swing. But one of the things that is remarkable about this figure is it shows uh, that both groups, men and women, went toward the Democratic Party in 2018, but nonetheless, uh, men still were more likely to vote for the Republican candidates. But the real reason I put this up is to show the significance of the following figure, and that is that women are not a monolithic group. So this graphic also from the New York Times in the same data series looking at uh, vote choice from 1982 to 2018 in for House candidates shows that black women and uh, Latinas are really critical to uh, this gender gap that we talk about in the electorate. That if you just look at the votes of white women, white women are still more likely to vote for the Republican candidates um, than uh, the Democratic candidates, which has important implications for representation inside Congress. In 2018, the last uh, point on this figure, you can see that white women are nearly divided in their votes between the Republican and Democratic candidates. Um, but in many of these cycles, white women were less likely than white men, but more likely than not to support the Republican candidates. And that this gender gap in the electorate, whereby women are more likely to support Democratic candidates is fueled by women of color and white women with college degrees, sort of representing the current Democratic coalition. So that gets us to our first-term Democrats and first-term Republicans. Um, and the Democratic group is obviously larger, um, and it is the most diverse freshman class ever, um, and in part because of the Democratic women. And this Congress also marks the first time that more than 20 African-American women serve at the same time. So. If you just read media accounts, uh, one of the most notable um, features of this election is the election of the squad, uh, a name that they gave themselves for new Congresswomen, Representatives Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York, Rashida Tlaib of Michigan, and Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. They named themselves the squad, and they have been quite effective in garnering a lot of attention on social media, a lot of followers. AOC, as we all know her, has a record, you know, breaking number of Twitter, Twitter followers, but they have also been the focus of intense scrutiny, both from the president and from Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Um, in their drive to move the Democratic Party leftward, um, Speaker Pelosi has clashed with them. They ultimately supported her bid for the speakership, um, but they voted against the party line on a border funding bill back in June, and Speaker Pelosi vented in an interview with Maureen Dowd, which of course wound up uh, in the newspapers, um, quote, all these people have their public whatever in their Twitter world, but they didn't, ha but they didn't have any following. They're four people, and that's how many votes they got. Well, they, they sort of beg to differ, um, and they've attracted a lot of attention. And it seemed that this feud between Speaker Pelosi and these new women of color who've garnered a lot of attention, who want to move uh, the party to the left, was potentially going um, 
to really blow up for Pelosi until um, President Trump jumped in the fray um, and said that, that the squad should go back to other countries, all U.S. citizens, fueling outrage among all Democrats and really unifying, um, unifying the party. And so it's important to think back to the graphics I showed earlier, that the Democratic Party right now has, is representing a lot of different groups. And for the four women of color in the squad and for many other of the Congresswomen, um, their bases are very liberal districts or districts that are comprised by a lot of voters of color where they talked about policies like Medicare for all or impeaching President Trump. And Speaker Pelosi, for her part, is worried about getting 218 votes to pass Democratic priorities. And so to an extent that Pelosi really didn't experience the last time she was Speaker, the Democratic Party is really fragmented on just how far left it should be, whether or not to begin impeachment proceedings about President Trump. And uh, Speaker Pelosi is taking a lot of heat for that. But she's also very concerned about reelecting those members who flipped the 40 districts that uh, catapulted Democrats to the majority. Now, they needed 23, they got 40, um, but Pelosi wants to keep her majority, certainly, um, and if she can, keep that margin, uh, keep those margins. And so often overlooked in the media are a lot of other gender dynamics at work, where a lot of women are trying to get reelected in districts that went for Trump in 2016. Five of them are female military veterans, and so they founded the Service First Women's Victory Fund. Alyssa Slotkin of Michigan, Christy Houlihan of Pennsylvania, Abigail Spanberger of Virginia, Elaine Luria of Virginia, and Mickey Sherrill of New Jersey. They're all veterans of the CIA, the Navy, and the Air Force, and they have really formed together to sort of become a different voice for women within the Democratic Party. So as the Democratic majority, as the number of women in the Democratic majority gets larger, sort of the diversity of women becomes much more apparent. And so now I sort of want to pivot towards some of my research on gender dynamics inside of Congress. And I should note that this research was all conducted through the end of last Congress. So I have not been able to crunch the numbers on the current Congress, but I have some thoughts about how it both sort of fits in and then is an anomaly um, right now. But when I think about gender dynamics inside of Congress, there's sort of two forces that are really important in explaining gender differences in legislative behavior. In other words, how women and men might legislate differently. And the first is the fact that serving in a male-dominated institution gives Congresswomen extra incentives to prove their credentials to their colleagues and their constituents. Research shows that Congresswomen are indeed more active and more effective. So for example, all else equal, if you control for seniority, committees, women introduce more bills than men. Women in Congress after Congress give more speeches on the House floor. They give more speeches during debates on important issues as, measures, as measured by Congressional Quarterly, and they give more speeches at 